Okay, we're in. Uh, we're going to chapter 11. Chapter 11 is another one of those kind of easy ones. At least the first half of it is is easy. Then we're only going to do the first half today uh, because it's not hardcore prophecy in the sense that it's you know beasts and animals and statues and weird stuff. It's just plain history in a nutshell. It is prophecy. It is history told in advance. As it is written, this is what the history looks like that is written in heaven. Okay? This is, the angel is telling Daniel what the writing is written in the writing of truth. And we get to read it. And you have a handout that we're going to go through. You might find it helpful to have your timeline just to refer to, your big one if you've got one. And, um, it, although not totally necessary. This vision occurs according to the first verse of chapter 10 the vision occurs in the third year of king cyrus so we start out with the kings of the persian empire on our handout and i'm going to give you a little filler about what else is happening in history as we go along because we're going to go through the kings of the persian empire and then the kings of the greek empire because that's what is foretold in this prophecy But just to give you context and to anchor you in what we've already studied and what's happening in the world, we're going to talk a little bit about what what is going on. So during, you remember King Cyrus, the very most famous thing he's most famous for is the very first year he issued the decree that the exiles could go back and rebuild the temple. We know that during that time then, that while the exiles were trying to do that, the people around Jerusalem were harassing them. It even says in Ezra 4-5 that they hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus the king and all the way down to the reign of King Darius. Now, Cyrus reigned from 536 to 5, I mean 539 to 530 BC. And during that time, Daniel presumably died. Okay. The last vision we have is recorded during the third year of of King Cyrus. Then we start Daniel chapter 11. The gray shaded parts in this handout are the excerpts verse by verse of the the prophecy that the angel gave to Daniel in chapter 11. And so we're going to read the verse and then we're going to look at the history that pertains to it. That's pretty good. Pardon? It is. It's really incredible. And as we go through, I want you to notice how precisely the prophecy matches what actually occurred in history and how easy it is to match it up and be amazed and in awe at how these particular details about these particular kings ended up being the details that got preserved in history. This is not... Like common, okay. So it's it's incredible. Daniel, it's a god thing. It's a god thing. That's right. <laughs> Daniel chapter eleven verse two. Now then, I tell you the truth. This is the angel speaking. Three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir every up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. So I've numbered the kings for you. Number one is Cambyses II. He was the son of Cyrus. He, uh, I, and I've kind of, as we go through, bolded some of the important stuff that we'll refer back to later. He conquered Egypt in 525 B.C. 
And as part of insulting them and demonstrating that they were a conquered people, he took their idols and carried them off with him okay, back into Persia. He later killed his, I think it was his brother, Smyrdas. Well, he killed him in secret. And so this other guy, whose real name was Guamata, rose up and claimed to be Smyrdas. To, to the people, because the people didn't know the real Smyrdas had been killed, and I guess he never came out of the palace, because people didn't know any better. And so he set himself, this Guamata guy, set himself up as king. And, and he, Cambyses was still living, but this, what they call pseudo-Smyrdas, that's why they call him pseudo-Smyrdas, um, convinced people to transfer their allegiance from, allegiance from Cambyses to him. And Cambyses died shortly thereafter. Well, the pseudo-Smyrdas only reigned about six months. And a lot of history books completely skip him. They go straight from Cambyses to Darius I because, you know, it's the point of a fake guy for six months. But God doesn't skip him. God knows he was there. And his record is preserved. because He is number two in the list of kings. Number three was Darius I, Hystaspes. He's also known as Darius the Great, not to be confused with Darius the Mede, who was apparently kind of a governor king or a vassal king under Cyrus, if he was. It's a different Darius, okay? He did rule for a good while. He was very famous. And during his reign was when Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets in the Bible, wrote their prophecies. And their prophecies are actually letters to the people of uh, the exiles exhorting them to get with it and build the temple. Get the temple built. Don't, you know, just give up because you're running into resistance. And it was during the reign of Darius that the temple was finished in 516 B.C. There, And I've given you um, throughout here different references in the Bible in Ezra to where this king is referred to and the actions of his reign are referred to. In, in, but we went through all that in an earlier lesson, so we're not going to redo it. The fourth king. So those were the three kings that will appear in, in Persia, then a fourth. And this fourth one is supposed to be richer than the others, gain power by his wealth, and then stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Well, let's look and see what he did. This one was Esther's husband. So this is the king in the book of Esther, also known, known as Ahasuerus. According to Esther 1, verses 1 and 2, he reigned all the way from Ethiopia and Africa to India and laid tribute on all those lands. Tribute, as you know, is like tax to the nth degree. It's a tax beyond taxes. It's huge. And so he was extremely wealthy and he attempted to conquer Greece. In 480 B.C. And he actually succeeded for, uh, there were some initial battles that he won. But then the Greeks kind of rallied and there were a series of naval battles and, and some land battles as well. And Xerxes was defeated and forced to withdraw back into Persia. However, this served to cause great resentment in the Greek nation. It was an unprovoked attack. He, you know, he just was greedy. So, um, apparently he was a greedy man because, and any time you have a king in that day and age that has a 
kingdom that extends that large geographically, he's going to spend all his time defending the borders of his kingdom and putting down rebellions from people who don't want to pay the tributes. And that's really what he spent his time doing. Famous contemporaries during that time period include the historian Herodotus, who lived from the time of Xerxes on down to uh, Darius II. So we'll start to get in and see some names of some people who are famous during this time frame that we recognize just from secular history. Now, from this point forward, there's a little time skip in the prophecy. All right, as we have become accustomed to, we hit the fourth king. He attempts to con- stirs everyone up against the kingdom of Greece. Well, that's the last significant thing for this prophecy, for the purpose of this prophecy. But there are a couple of other kings in between here. We've got our, our, this Artaxerxes the first, uh, and and he was the king who first issued a decree to stop rebuilding Jerusalem because remember the Jews had kind of started, they rebuilt the temple and then they were supposedly starting to rebuild Jerusalem. They didn't get very far. The, the people around Jerusalem wrote a letter to the king, said, you realize they're rebuilding Jerusalem and they're troublemakers and you better not let them do that because they'll revolt. And the king, sure enough, looked and, yep, Jews were troublemakers in the past. And so he told them to stop. And then the Jews wrote a letter and said, wait a minute, King Cyrus said that we could do this so let us rebuild let us rebuild the temple king um, went back and looked and and uh, allowed in 458 bc he allowed ezra to take a band of exiles back so so we know about ezra and in 445 bc this was the king who issued the decree to rebuild jerusalem not just the temple but to rebuild jerusalem is during his reign that the 77s began Okay, so that's the time period that we start from. Darius II was the next king. He didn't do anything particularly remarkable, and neither did any of the two kings after him, Artaxerxes II or Artaxerxes III. The things that happened during those time frames were mainly, we know from secular history, we had Hippocrates, the father of medicine, Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato, all during this time frame. The, the writing of truth that the angel is, is talking about, however, is focusing on the transitions of kingdoms. Okay, So the fact that this last king we looked at, Artaxerxes I, who issued the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, that was a, in a different context. So... This prophecy skips over him because he didn't have anything to do with the changing of kingdoms. Okay, Doesn't mean he wasn't important, but it helps us by understanding the history and what's being picked out of history and what's being left out in this prophecy helps us understand the point of the prophecy. Okay, So this helps us know that this prophecy is about the changing of the kingdoms. Okay, and, and ultimately, we, it, that tells us, it will tell us about the Antichrist, and it will tell us about the Millennial Kingdom, about Jesus Christ coming the second time, because we've already learned that those are the important kingdom changes. So we should be expecting to see some of that as we go through this prophecy. So, uh, verse 3, Daniel says, Then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. And we know that um, at the 
terminus of Darius III that Persia falls in 330 BC to Alexander the Great. That's who they're talking about. Because from that point on, then the kingdom gets split. And in fact, in, chapter, in verse 4, it says, After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Now, at this point, we are in a prophecy of events that are happening a hundred years after Daniel's death. I mean, to us, the time kind of telescopes because we're reading about it. But just in these few verses, we're already a hundred years past Daniel's death. Daniel is recording this. We know, of course, that this did in fact happen to Alexander's kingdom, was divided up among his four generals ultimately after some fighting and jockeying around. And from this point forward, the prophecy focuses on what they call the kings of the north, and the kings of the south. Now let me ask you a question. Just without even looking at the prophecies. What would be, they be north of and south of? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yes. Yeah. This, is go, this is a prophecy from the perspective of God's holy city and his holy people. His chosen people. It's the prophecy about what's going to happen to the Jews. So... These are the kings north of them and the kings south of them. So we're able to know, if I knew nothing else, if the scripture had just stopped right there, I would know that this prophecy is about the south, with the only kingdom south um, is, is the Ptolemies in Egypt. Okay? And, and north, there, we kind of have several choices because north, immediately north, is Syria. That's the Seleucus, the Seleucid Empire. Then you kind of wrap around the Mediterranean. They, they kind of wrap around the very top corner of the Mediterranean. And then there's a big area, Asia Minor, up there. That's the next guy. That would be um, Lysimachus. And then you keep going towards Greece and Macedonia. And that's the fourth guy who was Cassander. Okay. Now this prophecy focuses on the kings of the north and the kings of the south who like have continual fights with each other. That's Syria and Egypt. Okay. So we're going to focus on those two streams of empires, of, of kingdoms. So when we talk about the kings of the north, that's the Seleucids, and the kings of the south are the Ptolemies of Egypt. The first prophecy is verse 5. It says, The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he, and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. Well, what happens was the generals, these are the first two generals under Alexander the Great in the north and the south. The the north was Seleucus I, Nicator, and the south was Ptolemy I, Soter. They're both powerful generals. At the time of Alexander's death and and thereafter, Ptolemy was the more powerful one. He was the king of Egypt. Seleucus didn't really have a kingdom. He had to kind of peel his out, all right, of of different areas. And he ended up making himself king over Syria and declaring himself king of Palestine. Well, he also tried to move even further east and declare himself king of Babylon. But that 
other general, I don't know if y'all remember, Antigonus, who was, who was a fifth general involved in this mix, who was actually more powerful than any of the other four, and he was the one, he, he considered himself king over Babylon. So there was this big battle, and, and he essentially routed Seleucus. That is, Seleucus could not stand up to Antigonus. Seleucus ran down to Ptolemy and took refuge under Ptolemy. This is where the part comes from him being a commander, okay, under the king of the south. Well, Ptolemy and Seleucus and others join together and they go to battle against Antigonus and defeat him because otherwise Antigonus is going to be the next Alexander the Great. So they kill Antigonus and start parceling up territory again. Well, Ptolemy already has Egypt. Egypt pretty much stays defined throughout this whole period of time. It's all this other part, the Asia Minor and the Syria. The boundaries are changing, Persia, the boundaries are changing constantly. And Palestine is right there in between Egypt and Syria. And both of them claim that territory. Okay. Isn't that amazing? Both of them, <laughs> from like the very beginning, you know. Both of them claim the territory. So Seleucus, he goes off and he leaves Ptolemy and he re-declares himself king over Syria and Palestine. Well, that makes Ptolemy really mad. And Ptolemy hotly contests his right to Palestine. He doesn't really fight him over Syria. It's Palestine that he contests. So eventually, you know, Ptolemy is not able, is definitely not able to take Palestine from Seleucus, and Seleucus grows and expands and becomes more powerful than Ptolemy during this time, as prophesied in this verse. Well, Ptolemy's younger, uh, I'm sorry, sorry, eldest son, called Ptolemy Caranus, was not the heir to the throne. The heir to the throne was Ptolemy II, and Ptolemy Caranus was not happy with this. So he's, he's, he leaves Egypt and he goes up to the court of Lysimachus, who is the general who is in charge of, or who is over Asia Minor, north of Syria. Well, he is apparently a, a gossip and an, you know, he gets all embroiled in the intrigue and wants to overthrow Lysimachus. You know, you get the sense that he's trying to get his own kingdom. You know, he's not going to get Egypt, so he's out there trying to get what, whatever he can. Well, he gets involved in the court intrigue up there in Asia Minor and asks Seleucus I to help him overthrow Lysimachus, help him and whoever else was with him overthrow Lysimachus in Asia Minor. They did that. Okay. Now, Ptolemy Caranus did not end up, you know, the Ptolemies did not end up ruling Asia Minor thereafter, but... This was just this one little weird part of history where the Ptolemy ended up being an ally with Seleucus Nicator for this weird, this one weird part. So Ptolemy ends up marrying Lysimachus' widow, who was his half-sister. He then murdered her and he murdered her children. She ran off to Egypt where she married another one of her brothers, which was fairly common back then, apparently. Seleucus I, meanwhile, uh, continues to grow in power, and he gets so greedy, he is ultimately assassinated. It's kind of like you don't stay in your own boundaries. Somebody's going to do something about it. Then we, that definitely fulfilled the the prophecy in in verse 5. So then we go to verse 6. The daughter of the king of the south 
will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. That's so that's, that the daughter of the king of the south is going to go to the king of the north, and neither she nor the king of the north will stay in power. In those days, she will be handed over together with her royal escort and her father, who is the king of the south, remember, and the one who supported her, who is variously interpreted to be the guy she went to marry, okay, the king of the north. So let's see what happened. The, the first thing that happened was Antiochus first Soter um, fought the Ptolemies, fought the south over Palestine in the first Syrian war. He lost, was killed in a battle in Galatia. It's like a it's like a nickname, a throne name, and Soter actually means savior. All right. So a lot of times these nicknames they were either given to themselves, like remember Antiochus the fourth gave himself the name of Epiphanes, God in person, so or manifestation of God. Uh, sometimes they would name themselves. Other times it would be as a result of some great act that they did. Their people or would name them okay so so it's helpful just so you don't have to think in terms they kept naming themselves the same thing Antiochus or Seleucus or Ptolemy just to keep them straight I put their surnames in to to make it a little bit easier to tell one from the other well meanwhile in the south Ptolemy II Philadelphus has acceded to the throne it was under his rule that best we can tell that was when the Septuagint version a translation of the scriptures was done that's when the old testament was was translated into greek and is such a huge help to us in that translation this particular chapter that refers to the kings of the south translates that egypt so it's just another confirmation that that's what that the septuagint Mm -hmm. So during this time, uh, Ptolemy II Philadelphus does succeed in wresting Palestine from the Seleucids during this first Syrian war with Antiochus Soter. Well, Antiochus, um, after Antiochus Soter is killed in battle in, in Galatia over in you know, Greece, uh, Antiochus II Theos comes to the throne in the north. He marries his half-sister Laodicea. Okay. Now, he apparently was a complete degenerate, drunken, immoral, awarded power on the basis of favoritism. He was a real bad guy, weak, bad guy. He was attacked by Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, in the south, and that was the Second Syrian War. Well, he lost, and as a condition of peace, Ptolemy forced Antiochus to divorce Laodicea and marry Ptolemy's daughter, Bernice. This was supposedly to create an alliance between the two kingdoms. Well, when Ptolemy died, Antiochus said, heck with this noise, and he (laughs) got rid of Bernice and remarried Laodicea, who was who he wanted to be married to in the first place. Well, Laodicea wasn't having any of this, she was really upset about how humiliated she had been. She murdered him. She murdered Bernice. And she mar- murdered their baby. Yes. So if you go back to the verse and read it, it makes more sense. 
the daughter of the king of the south, that would be Bernice, will go to the king of the north, Antiochus the Theos, to make an alliance. Correct. That was as a result of the first Syrian war. Or, I'm sorry, the second. The, yeah, the first Syrian war. But she will not retain her power. Correct. She got killed. He and his power will not last. Correct. He got killed. In those days, she will be handed over together with her royal escort and her father who died during this time and the one who supported her. Okay. So now we go to Daniel uh, chapter 11, verse 7 through 9. One from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. So what happens is... One from her family line will arise to take her place. That would have been, we're talking about Bernice, right? So we know it has to be a Ptolemy because she was from the south. And sure enough, the next guy on the throne was Bernice's brother. In revenge for the death of Bernice, he attacks Syria in the third Syrian war and succeeds not only in winning this war, he captured their main port and their capital city of Antioch. So he captured both Seleucia and Antioch. According to Jerome, he took 40,000 talents of silver. That's 43, more than 43 million troy ounces that would be worth a half a billion dollars today. He took 40, half a billion dollars worth of silver, 2,500 precious vessels and idols, including the ones that Cambyses had carried off to Egypt way back in 525 B.C. that we looked at on the first page. He took those back. Because of that, he brought their idols back to them in Egypt. He was given the surname Yergetes, which means benefactor. That's how he got his surname. He was murdered by his son, Ptolemy IV Philopater. So if we go back over to the north and look and see what's happening there, okay, Laodicea's son has come to power because Laodicea murdered all the competition. He lost big time to Ptolemy Ergetes, okay, obviously. But he tried to retaliate. When he tried to retaliate, he was defeated and forced to retreat. Now, some histories you read say it was kind of a draw, all right? And some histories you read say, well, he won some, he lost some. There were some territory wins and territory lost. It wasn't a complete route. But the, the, what I noted was that Ptolemy in the south retained control of Judea. Okay. Therefore, from the perspective of the Jew, the king of the north lost. Okay. And that is exactly what is prophesied in those verses that we read. It's going back and forth. Now we're down to uh, verse 10. And these are some long verses, but it, it says, and we may just kind of break this up, but it says his sons, now it's talking about the king of the north here, his sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage. So first off, we're looking for sons. Well, sure enough, this king did have two sons, both of whom 
came to power. The first one was Seleucus III Soter. He was the elder son. And the second son was Antiochus III, called the Great. So apparently these two sons assembled an army, prepared for war, marched out. Well, Seleucus III marched into Asia Minor and he ended up being assassinated. So he was out of the picture fairly quickly. The younger son was Seleucus II, uh, I'm sorry, he's the younger son of Seleucus II, is Antiochus the Great, Antiochus III. He, he was very young. He was only 20 years old when he came to the throne. And he almost immediately declared war on Egypt. You see, he came to the throne in 223 B.C., and in 220 he just declared war on the south. He was able... Syria, if you imagine Syria, right up where the Mediterranean you know, kind of curves over... That's where Antioch is. That's where his capital is. He pushed his borders all the way down, all the way through Palestine, all the way to the Sinai Peninsula, to Gaza. He is at the very borders of Egypt. In fact, he's already taken Palestine. So, you know, he's already encroached upon areas that, that um, Egypt has historically believed that are theirs. Well, Ptolemy Philopater... Um, is on the throne. Philopater, by the way, means father-loving. Philopater. He, this is the guy who murdered his own dad. And this is his surname. But he apparently murdered several family members while he was in power. And he was very similar to that last guy that we read about, the um, Antiochus Theos, who was drunken and immoral. And this guy, like... I think he's famous for the orgies, you know, that he had. He was just really a nasty person, and he was weak. It was, what was happened was he would let anybody do anything as long as they let him, left him to his vices, okay? So he was really almost a puppet king in the sense that other people really pulled the strings. Well, he wasn't paying any more attention to the king of the north Advancing toward him, he just simply didn't care. It wasn't until Antiochus the Third got, or Antiochus the Great got all the way to his borders that he even did anything about it. Well, at the time when Antiochus finally got as far as Gaza, then um, Ptolemy Philopater raised up a huge army and marched up to the town of Rapha, which is near Gaza. Now, the two armies at this point are pretty evenly matched, about seventy thousand troops each, but the Ptolemy's army, the army of the south, won a major victory. This was a rout. Not only did they utterly destroy the Syrian army, they took thousands and thousands of people captive. They almost captured Antiochus the Great. It was that bad. What is bizarre is they were, they almost had the leader of that entire region. Egypt could have extended all the way up into Syria. But they, Ptolemy wasn't a fighter. They did not pursue their advantage. They let Antiochus go. And he was able to regroup and rebuild. Ptolemy went back to, to Egypt where he died mysteriously. Okay. But in the meantime, um, Antiochus the Great rebuilt and spent the next several years conquering lands as far east as India. So, you know, they continued to try to expand east through, through Persia and India. When, when Ptolemy Philopater died, he left an infant on the throne. That's just an invitation for 
invasion back in those days. So Antiochus the Great and Philip V of Macedonia came, drug up an army and came to make a series of attacks on Egypt. They were helped in doing this by elements in Palestine and Judea. Okay. So the, the Judeans sided essentially with the north, with Syria. So let's read and see what it says in verse 11. Um, the king of the south will march out in a rage. This is Philopater and fight against the king of the north who will raise a large army but will be defeated. So we, we know that he was defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands. Yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will, must, will muster another army larger than the first. So this is the one we're talking about. The one where he teams up with Philip of Greece. And after several years, he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. That's true. That happened. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. So this prophesies that Antiochus the Great is going to conquer Jerusalem and Palestine, right? In 198 BC, that happened. So when he teamed up with Philip of uh, Macedonia, they actually did defeat the Ptolemies, gained control of Palestine, and this was the final changing of hands. So from this point on, the Jews are under the dominion of the north. Now, up to this point, they had been pretty much under the dominion of the south. And the Egyptians left them alone. The Egyptians were religiously tolerant. Okay. And the Jews had been left alone. This, the, this, the Greeks that they're now under, the Syrians, the, um, the Macedonians, the people who, and ultimately the Romans, who they are now under, are not religiously tolerant. And it's at this point that the real persecution of the Jews begins. So anyway, um, Antiochus the Great, is he's full of himself, so he's going to keep on going. And he's going to keep on marching. And he turns his attention now. He's going to conquer Greece. So he's conquered the south. Now he's going to turn around. He's going to conquer everything west of him. And the Romans are already there. Okay. So the, he takes on the Romans at this point. Well, they rout him in a series of battles. Through There's a battle at Thermopylae. There's a battle at Magnesia. There's several battles. And in 190 B.C., the Roman general Scipio Asiaticus defeats him entirely. Let's read how that is prophesied. Verse 17. He will, and he's talking about Antiochus here. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. And he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom. But his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them. That's this part about the Romans that we just read. But a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back upon him. That's that Roman general doing that. After this, he will turn back 
toward the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. Well, there was a piece in there we didn't see. What was that bit about he's going to make an alliance with the king of the south and give him his daughter, give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom, but it doesn't work? Did that happen? Well, yeah. Look what happened when that infant son came to the throne in Egypt. His name was Ptolemy the Fifth Epiphanes. He was, he was conquered by Antiochus the Great, and Antiochus gave his daughter Cleopatra as part of the peace treaty. Okay. So we think of Cleopatra as being an Egyptian name, but in this case, she's the daughter of the king of Antiochus the Great. And he, he gave his daughter, and we know, for, although it's not recorded in history, we know from this pro- prophecy in the Bible that he had an ulterior motive in doing that. What he was trying to do was establish his own line over Egypt. Okay, didn't work because Egypt survived as a separate nation. But that was prophesied. And then it says essentially that Antiochus the Great is just going to fade off into the into the distance. And sure enough, he when he was defeated by the Romans by that Roman general, the Roman commander, the Romans allowed him to continue to operate, quote, as a kind of a vassal king. He had to pay real heavy tributes to Rome. So heavy that Rome took his son as hostage to make sure he paid the tributes. That son, and, and he then was scrounging for money the rest of his life, the, Antiochus the Great. In fact, he died while he was trying to rob a temple of Artemis. Okay. And so he just like, petered out at the end, became a nobody. His son, the one that was, that was um, taken hostage, was Antiochus Epiphanes, the one that we studied. So now we're down to, to verse 19 and 20. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. And we know why they would do that, because they need money big time at this point. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed yet not in anger or in battle. The successor of Antiochus the Great was Seleucus IV Philopater. He was the brother of Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay. He, because of his father's defeat by Rome, he had to pay a heavy tribute to the Romans of a thousand talents a year. That's about $13 million a year. Can you imagine living in a desert land and paying $13 million a year? And they didn't have oil back then. To Rome. Yeah, to Rome, because his dad went to, to battle against Rome and lost. So now he's having to pay tribute. So according to Second Maccabees, chapter 3, verse 7, Seleucus Philopater sends one of his ministers named Heliodorus to Jerusalem to rob the temple, to get some of the money, to take it. He heard about the treasures in the temple. He sent him over to get it. Heliodorus, according to Maccabees, was unsuccessful in that effort because of divine intervention. God made a miracle that day. And Heliodorus was sent packing. Meanwhile, Seleucus is murdered by Heliodorus, the very man he had sent to rob the temple. Um, Just before his death, his son, Demetrius, was swapped with Antiochus Epiphanes in Rome. So Antiochus Epiphanes, who had been held hostage for 14 years, is let go. And Seleucus' son, Demetrius, is taken as hostage. You can understand why they did this. Seleucus probably 
could care less what happened to his brother. His brother is a threat to him. It's not a reason to pay, you know, $13 million a year. On the other hand, his own son, yes, that would be a reason to pay $13 million a year. So whenever there's a change of the guard, okay, they're going to switch hostages to be the most meaningful person in that relationship. That happened just prior to Seleucus being murdered by Heliodorus. Now, at that point, a question comes up because we get that very last phrase in verse 20 says, In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. Now, getting murdered to me sounds like it's in anger. But you begin to wonder, are we really talking about Seleucus IV? Are we beginning, you know, have we skipped time? And are we, you know, talking about some other players? And, and another reason that, I, that that would be particularly coming to our mind is because of the next verse, verse 21. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure and he will seize it through intrigue. Does that sound familiar? That was the Antichrist. That was like almost verbatim some prophecy that we have read earlier. And you know who the next king is after Seleucus IV? You know who comes to power? Antiochus Epiphanes. The very one who marked that break and that time skip in the previous prophecies. Okay? When we got to Antiochus Epiphanes in the previous prophecies, that was the time break and the prophecies were talking about the Antichrist. Now there's a couple of, let's pull your Bible now because this is not in the handout. And let's look at a couple of clues that we have in the text that this does in fact end this prophecy of the Persian kings and, and we're now in a time skip and are now talking about the, the kingdom of the Antichrist. Look, we, we left off at, at verse 21 where it says he will be succeeded by a contemptible person. Okay. Uh-huh, chapter 11. Now if you if you look in your Bible down to from chap, from verse 21 to verse 36. Okay? That whole section is the section that would be in dispute between perhaps me and other scholars. Okay? From verse 36 forward it is unanimously agreed there is no way that could have been Antiochus Epiphanes done fit, not even remotely. Okay, So everybody from 36 forward, and probably most of your footnotes in your Bible will say, from 36 forward, it's the Antichrist. Okay, From 21 to 35, most people believe this is about Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, the keys... In addition to the fact that we already studied the context and we know some of this terminology relates to the Antichrist from our earlier work, there are some clues here in the text. One of them is if you just kind of back up from verse 36, it, it talks about from verse 35, I mean 33 to 35, it kind of talks about the wise will stumble and be burned or plundered and okay. That, that to me sounds a whole lot like 
tribulation times, right? Okay. Now, that could fit Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay. He was very cruel and nasty. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll seed that point. <laughs> okay. The back, back up again. But it's still talking about this, to me, about this same, same king. His forces rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. This is in verse 31. Okay. We know Antiochus Epiphanes did that, right? We also know the Antichrist is going to do that. Fits both of them. Look at the next part of that verse. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Jesus himself said that was in the future. Jesus said when you see the abomination of desolation sitting in the holy place, don't even go back downstairs for your coat. Run away as fast as you can because that's the start of the great tribulation. Jesus said that is not Antiochus Epiphanes. That's the exact phrase. Exactly. Okay. So I don't see that you have a leg to stand on to say this is Antiochus Epiphanes. Even though Antiochus did some of these things, I see Antiochus Epiphanes as an echo, a historical echo, a reverberation, a root, if you will, that flowers in the Antichrist. Okay. So I believe that there are for a reason similarities here. Not the least of which is Satan would love to confuse us. Okay. So this is really probably about the Antichrist. Yeah. So then when you back up, there, the, all these verses from 21 to 29 where it, that we'll go through next week where it talks about the various battles between the north and the south, they do not fit Antiochus Epiphanes in sequence like all these other prophecies fit all these other kings in sequence, okay? Where you can just exactly pick it out and say, yep, that one, yep, that one, yep, that one, okay? You could pick out little pieces and say, yeah, that was Antiochus Epiphanes. But it doesn't make sense. For example, verse 25 through 28, it talks about how the king of the north stirs up an you know, everybody against the king of the south and they, and they have a war with a big army and the king of the south is not able to stand. People who eat from the king's provisions you basically try to destroy him. So he's got traitors in his midst. His army will be swept away. Many will fall in battle. The two kings, this is verse 27, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other. But to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. Lots of red flags there. Okay? The end will come at an appointed time. When you read that now, you guys know that is a verbal flag. It's a marker. Okay? That's not talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. And furthermore, when, when Antiochus Epiphanes did fight with this, the, he did go south and he did tr- take over Egypt. I don't know if you remember from our studies before. He actually went south. He conquered Memphis and he was on, and he captured the king of Egypt and held him captive. Declared himself king of Egypt. He was on his way to Alexandria to further to do further conquests. When the Romans said, eh, 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 "Give it back," and made him forced Antiochus Epiphanes to give Egypt back to the Ptolemies. The Romans made him do that. 
Then Antiochus Epiphanes came north, and that was the time when he was mad. He was coming north, and he decided to utterly wipe out the Jews. Okay? People try to force that time into this phrase where it says, The two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table, lie to each other, but to no avail. I think that's a real stretch. Okay, because that to me is not what happened in history. Antiochus came, he conquered. (laughs) He wasn't negotiating with the king of the south as an equal. All right. So I think there's a whole lot of text in here, and we'll read this text through next time. We'll start with verse 21. 27 sounds so much like what is supposed to happen in the end times with all the different religions becoming one and then trying to make one money and doing the covenant the covenant with the many exactly so I think if you have done careful study up to this point as we have this looks pretty obvious that we don't need to waste a lot of time comparing this to Antiochus Epiphany so I'm not going to give you a great big grid like we did before because you now understand the, the, the verbal clues that you're seeing. So when we start next week, we're going to start with verse 21 and think Antichrist. And begin to think, how does this fit in that last seven years? What does this tell us about the last seven years or even the time during his rise to power, even just preceding, preceding the last seven years? I think very valid about that Satan would throw this in to confuse non-believers or even believers. Even believers, yeah.